Well, Merry Christmas. I'm grateful to see everyone who the Lord's brought here today on this cold, dreary Sunday before Christmas. Thank you all for being here today to gather with God's people. I hope you have a Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. All of us understand the purpose of road signs. Uh, Most of us see road signs every day by the hundreds, don't we? Some of us are better than others at following those road signs. We know that. Um, But being being serious here, we, we do know, we do know that some signs are more serious than others. There is one objective way that we can know that, isn't there? There's an objective way that we can know how serious a road sign is by looking at its color, right? When we see a yellow road sign, we know that that means to use caution, usually. In other words, there could be something ahead of you that you would need to slow down for. So if you saw a sign that said, caution, children at play, you would want to slow down. Keep your eyes open to see if there would be children at play. But here's the thing. Because it's only a caution sign, it doesn't guarantee that children will be at play, does it? It just means there might be children at play that you need to watch out for. So slow down, you could see children ahead of you. But then there's another kind of objective signal and sign that is the color red. It's the color red. And that is elevated in seriousness, isn't it? To see a red stoplight and to disregard it could be catastrophic. You could slam into the side of a moving vehicle Hopefully most of us will follow a red stoplight, right? A stop sign. Warning signs are also red, aren't they, typically? Warning, road is out ahead. Well, you would want to know that, wouldn't you? You would really want to know that. Warning, no outlet. That's an important sign too. I'm frustrated when I find myself on a road that I didn't pay attention to that sign. Warning, no outlet. A sign like that would tell you that this road only has a couple of destinations at the end of it. That's all, right? You may need to turn around and go the opposite way. Our parable today can be a gracious road sign for us, I believe. Here's the thing. Our parable today isn't just a cautionary story, though. It's a, I will argue, a red sign for us to have an elevated seriousness given to us as we see what will be said to us in this parable by our Lord. It's telling us, this parable, truthfully, what lies ahead for us. It's made to get our attention 
the message that it's going to tell us we can stake our lives upon. We can expect that this is going to happen ahead of us as sure as we can expect the resurrection or as sure as we know that the Lord has resurrected from the dead, we can stake our lives on what this truth is telling us today. So if our parable was a road sign, what would it say? Here's my attempt to make a road sign for our parable today. As cheesy as that may sound, I do think it's maybe an easy way to remember the main idea of this sermon. Here's the road sign. Warning, our master ahead, no outlet, faithfulness required. Warning, our master ahead, no outlet, faithfulness required. I, I know that this is not a perfect analogy. There's many flaws in it, I'm sure. But I do think it helps us better see the purpose, the purpose of this parable and the parables in this context to get our attention, to get our attention, to alert us. Yes, to lovingly, graciously warn us even of what lies ahead. Why? So that we can get ready. So that we can be prepared, Right? And in the context, I know y'all know this, preparedness, that theme has been everywhere, hasn't it? The last two weeks, stay awake, be ready, be watchful. The theme of preparedness for the second coming of Jesus has been everywhere. But the concept of being prepared begs a question, doesn't it? It begs a question, how? do you get prepared? How do you get prepared? And the last couple of weeks have been unpacking the different dimensions of what preparedness is, how we are to get prepared. These have been drawn out for us the last couple of weeks and we're gonna see even a further unpacking of that today to help us be more prepared. For example, look over at Matthew 24, verse 35. We were told there in Matthew 24, verse 35, that to be prepared means to treasure God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Jesus said. Pastor Moises showed us that day that to, part of being prepared is to treasure the words of Christ, his word. Last week, the parable of the 10 virgins, we saw that being ready or being prepared means to wisely live your life with expectancy, watchfulness, especially being sure to possess what is needed to enter eternal life and enter the wedding feast. Wasn't that what our parable last week taught? No doubt, that's a massively important thing that we needed to see. We have to possess what is needed to go into eternal life in the wedding feast. Notice, look at 24, chapter 24 quickly, verse 45. 24, 45, it says, who then is the faithful and wise servant? Do you see that? Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Well, the parables are helping us answer that question. Do you see that? Last week, five wise virgins were set up and wisdom was unpacked for us in that parable. Was it not? 
What does it look like to be wise according to Jesus? Last week's parable helped us see that. Who then is the wise servant? Last week we saw that. This week, he's helping us answer, who then is the faithful servant? Who then is the wise and faithful servant? Do you see that? Chapter 24, verse 45. So these parables are helping interpret and unpack Jesus' question in Matthew 24, 45. That's what we want to answer today. Who then is the faithful servant? We're going to see that being prepared, yes, you need to be wise, you need to be living expectantly, you need to be thinking inwardly about what you possess and are you ready? Looking, maybe you could say upward, at being watchful for Christ's return. But we also have to be thinking outwardly to be prepared, being faithful with what we've been given, being faithful for what we've been given. So that's what we're unpacking today, what it means to be faithful so we can be more prepared for when the Lord comes for us again. Does that sound okay? We wanna see today from this parable how does faithfulness look according to Jesus? What does it mean to be faithful? I wanna say quickly before we jump into the text, the theme of being prepared, it coming repetitiously over and over at us, should, should tell us something, shouldn't it? It should tell us something. Be prepared, be prepared over and over. What should it tell us? Probably many things, but I wanna suggest one thing that it tells us. It tells us that in this world, there will be a powerful, overwhelming temptation and pull upon people's lives to be unprepared. Do you see that? There will be a powerful, overwhelming temptation and pull upon people's lives to be unprepared. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't set your life on autopilot. This requires expectancy, watchfulness, faithfulness. I've often heard it said before, maybe you've heard this, it's not the profound truths that shape us most, but it's the persistent truths that shape us most. Have you ever heard that before? I think that's good. Sometimes we spend our lives just searching for just the truth that I've just never heard before. And those can be changing for us. But often it's the week in, week out reminders. Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? What has he come for? Where is he taking us? Over and over and over in our lives that transform us the most. Many of you, I hope, have had that testimony in your lives so yes, preparedness, that theme started at the end of chapter 24. We're still talking about it today, but another aspect of it. I want to thank Noel for excellently reading our passage earlier. So let's get into this parable. Three main characters in this parable. Three main, par three main characters in this parable. You'll, you'll see why I say only three in a second. The first character we see is the master of the household, the second character or characters are faithful and prepared servants. Two are mentioned, but they represent one kind of person, okay? And the third character is another servant of the master who is unprepared, slothful, 
and lazy. Each of these characters represent crucial aspects, teach us crucial aspects about the kingdom and about Christ's return. And there's two main points that I want us to see today. Two main points. The first is this from this passage. Church family, be prepared. Christ is the owner of all. Be prepared. Christ is the owner of all. Where am I getting that? Look with me in verses 14 and 15. For it, it, in this context, if you look back at 25.1, is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, some of your translations may say that, the kingdom of heaven. For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants, and listen to this, entrusted to them his property. If you make notes in your Bible and underline with a pencil, you could underline his property. That's a very important phrase. He called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another he gave one, each according to his ability. Christ being the owner of everything, I feel like most of us have heard before and most of us would understand, most of us would agree with. Um, If that question was asked on a spiritual exam, who owns everything in the universe? I think most of us would say God does. Most of us know that instinctually. But as I've searched my heart over the last couple of weeks thinking about this passage, I, I, I need to confess that often this truth doesn't catch practical traction in my life. I think many of us who live in the West, if we're honest, we struggle with practically putting this into play in our lives. Living like Christ is the owner of all. And we really begin to see that. You've heard this before, but I need to say it again. We really begin to see, if we believe that, when we look at how we spend our time, when we look at how we spend ourselves, that that's all of our energies, that's our spiritual gifts. When we look at how we spend our money, we really begin to see if we believe that, if we believe that Christ has his own everything, he owns everything, and that we're not owners. That's, that's what the scripture teaches overwhelmingly. Colossians 1.16 says this, This isn't on the screens, but you know this passage, famous. It says, all things were created by Christ. It says, all things were created through Christ. And it says, all things were created for Christ. That's an amazingly comprehensive sentence, isn't it? In our call to worship this morning, we read Psalm 24 for a purpose, to impress this truth further upon us. The earth is the Lord's and everything within it. The fullness thereof, the ESV says. We know that, but do we live like that's true? Do we live like that's true? If you are a Christian in this room, this point should be especially important for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20 says, you're not your own You're not your own if you're here and you're a Christ follower. 
God's word says you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Famously, um, Abraham Kuyper, he was a late 19th century pastor. Many of y'all have heard this quote before. I need to read it again today because it's good. Pastor from the Netherlands, this is what he says. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. There is not one square inch over the entire human domain over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Do we live like that church family? Well, a quick word about a talent because the passage brings it up. And when we think about this parable, we immediately think about talents, talents. Talent was a monetary term during this period of time. It's not how we use the word talent today. We use the word talent today to talk about special abilities, about particular giftings that we might have. That's not the understanding of a talent that the text is describing. This is a monetary term And there's some debate about exactly how much it's worth. Here's the universal consensus, though, in all commentaries. It's an enormous sum of money. Some of your footnotes in your Bible may say this, that one talent is approximately worth 20 years of wages. Some say it it was worth at least $600,000 for us today. One talent. This is not a a frivolous amount, okay? This is an enormously valuable resource. Do you see that? We have to see that. This is of immense value. The, The master who is going away on a journey is giving away something that is immensely valuable. This is enormous responsibility and privilege. I want you want you to see that. Also notice here that the master gave each according to his ability. The end of verse 15 says that. To each according to his ability. And I hope that doesn't strike you as unfair or I hope that doesn't discourage you, any of us who are prone to comparison. I think a verse like that we kind of recoil from. But I want you to know that verse that he gives to each according to his ability has been a great encouragement to me these past couple weeks thinking about this. And it should be for all of us today. This is, I, I want us to, to, to hear that phrase this way, that the master, the king, the Lord of the universe knows you perfectly. He knows your ability perfectly. Some translations say power is another way to translate that word. He knows your abilities. He knows your strength. He knows your power. And he gives to us specifically, purposefully, intentionally, carefully. He gives us his valuable kingdom resources to steward. If you, if you struggle with comparison, church family, I want to just encourage you that you have plenty. You've been given all that the master needs you to have to be faithful And it is so encouraging to think that both of the first two servants had the exact same 
things said to them by their master when they returned. It's so easy for me to say, oh my goodness, I'm just doing nothing compared to this other brother over here, compared to this other sister over here. Look at all that they're doing for the kingdom. And this passage says to all of us, you have enough. Kurt, I've given you everything you need to be faithful with right now in your life. What are you doing with what I've given to you? I know you perfectly. And if you're faithful with what I've given to you, you'll hear the phrase that everyone wants to hear and longs to hear at the end of your life. Well done, good and faithful servant. I hope that's encouraging. Well, he entrusted his servants with his kingdom resources and then the text says he went away. He went away. And, and by the way, that's where we find ourselves today, isn't it? We're, we're, we live our lives between two comings of Jesus. Y'all have heard it said before. Um, this week we celebrate, don't we, the great inauguration of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. Christ Jesus the Lord came. He came. He was born of a virgin. He came with a certain purpose, we're told, in his name. At the beginning of Matthew, we were told, call his name Jesus. You can finish the sentence. For he will save his people from their sins. He came to die and rise again, appear to many of his followers, ascend to heaven to be at the right hand of his father. And church family, he's gone away. He's gone away. He's given to us his resources. And hear me, he's coming back. He's coming back. And he's calling us to be faithful. We must be faithful. And that's the second point we need to see. Second, be prepared, church family. Christ is coming back and faithfulness will be required. Faithfulness will be required. We're seeing this unpacked in large portion in 16 through verse 30. Look with me at just some of this. Look at verse 16 with me. He who had received the five talents, the text says, went at once and traded with them. He made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents, he made two talents more. And after a long time, notice a long time, that phrase, it, it, it parallels to the, par the, the parable before where the master or the bridegroom was delayed. This is parallel language. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, it says. Verse 20, he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, master, you delivered to me five talents. I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Can you just imagine, church family, what that's gonna be like? The first two servants were faithful. The second servant, you can read it in the text, the same pattern, two talents, he made two talents more. He presented himself to the master. Here, I've made two talents more. The exact same thing said to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. How, I want us to see though, how were these servants faithful? Quickly, I want us to see how they were faithful. Well, they were faithful 
First, because they were diligent and joyful stewards. Notice the language in the text. They went at once. It was almost as though they couldn't help themselves. They went at once. Do you see how that communicates diligence and initiative on the fact of these servants? They properly felt the weight, the joyful magnitude of receiving their master's property. Do you, friends, family? They rightly felt the joyful magnitude of receiving their master's property. And almost as though they couldn't help themselves, they went at once, the text says. But then secondly, how they were faithful? Look, look, they multiplied their master's resources. They were fruitful. They were fruitful. Being faithful in this context, church family, doesn't just mean you come around a lot. You show up at church a lot. Isn't that often how we use the word faithful? I use that word a lot like that. Well, you know, this, this person, they, they can, they're really negative and divisive, but they're faithful. They're faithful. And what we mean by that often is they're here a lot, or they're in our lives a lot. That is not a full picture of faithfulness, is it? To be faithful according to Jesus in this passage, means that we are fruitful. Yes, to varying degrees, praise God, but fruitful. And by the way, this isn't an isolated theme in Matthew. That, that theme should be ringing in your ears. We don't have time to talk about all the examples. I'll just quickly uh, just throw out a few of them. Matthew seven fifteen. it says, beware of false prophets, they'll come. You will recognize them, it says, by their Fruits. A few verses later, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom, but who's the one that will? The one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Matthew 12, 33, a tree is known by its fruit. Matthew 13, 18, the parable of the sower. That's a really important parable and how it parallels what we're talking about today. There's four soils. Two of them look like they're, they've received the word, but it's that fourth one, isn't it? The fourth soil that it says it yields. It, 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 it exactly, it says, indeed, that fourth soil bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another, 60, and another, 30. And that fourth soil is the one who Jesus is teaching. Those are the ones going into my kingdom. Matthew 21, it's even closer to us in our context. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and really important in verse 43 of chapter 21, he says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and it's going to be given to, what does it say? A people producing its fruits. This is not an isolated theme in the book of Matthew. It's everywhere. I would also argue it's a lot all over the New Testament. But I don't want to say this to put a kind of wrong emphasis on faithfulness or on our works, but only to try to be faithful, to emphasize what I believe God's word over and over is emphasizing to us, church family. To be faithful servants. To be faithful servants, we must be fruitful. 
Yes, to varying degrees. Yes, with various capacities. But we must be fruitful in order to be called faithful. Next week, we'll see, to our great encouragement, often we don't see, we often don't see how we've been fruitful specifically. I think personally, God hides that from us sometimes to keep us humble. In the, in the great last judgment we're gonna see next week, do you remember, you remember the story? How, how were we faithful? They basically asked the Lord and he has to tell them how they'd been faithful and fruitful. So we don't always see how we've been faithful and fruitful, but in the end, God's faithful servants will bear fruit. Scripture teaches that. And speaking of them multiplying their resources, notice quickly that 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 multiplication required risk. It required risk. They went at once, it says, and traded with them. Some translations say they put them to work. Maybe your translation says that. This is a contrast to the wicked servant who it says he buried it. Now at that time, all commentators say burying a treasure was the absolute way to play it safe. You wouldn't lose a thing. You buried it. Buried a treasure. So all the commentators say what's involved in this parable is is a form of risk, a variety of risk in how these faithful servants are being fruitful. Being faithful to God, hear me, church family. Being faithful to God will require risk in many areas of your life. It will require risk with many things in your life. Your reputation, your comfort, your energy, your gifts. Yes, even your money require risk. This isn't a call to be unwise. I'm not talking about that, but we need to remember that heaven's wisdom is not the same as the world's wisdom very often, is it? Often with what we will do with our resources may look like absolute folly compared to the world, won't it? But it's what Jesus treasures. That's a, that's a thing for another day. To, we have to know what Jesus says is valuable. This is his treasures he's given to us that we're called to be faithful with. We see a contrast, though, in the passage. In the parable of the faithful servant, we see two in a row servants that are faithful, don't we? And all the commentators say that's a common way for rabbis to teach a point at that time. They would have a parable and there would be a character that would, or a theme that would be established in repetition. So you notice two faithful servants are given in a row and then here comes a third to intentionally set out the contrast. Do you notice that? A pattern gets established in the parable then so that in verse 18, when the pattern's broken, we notice it more. Do you see that? This third servant breaks the pattern and sets the contrast of the two faithful servants. And so this last servant I want us to see is shown to be unfaithful. The text actually calls him wicked and slothful in verse 26. But we know in the context of this parable, this servant has been unfaithful. Quickly, look at verse 18. 
he would receive the one talent, went and dug in the ground. He hid his master's money. The master came and settled accounts. Move forward a little bit to verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. He was unfaithful, and I want us to see how he was unfaithful. Well, first we need to see how this third servant was unfaithful. He was unfaithful, most importantly, because he was deceived about the character of his master. Look back at verse 24, what he says to him. Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man. Other translations, what that word means, it means harsh, strict, cruel, merciless. I pray most of you are recoiling at a description like that for our master and Lord Jesus. You should be, why? Because you should be screaming on the inside, that's not, my Je- that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That is not the master. That's not him. He had a misperception he had a misunderstanding of God. And we've talked in the, in the book of Matthew already about fatal misunderstandings of God, haven't we? And this is another fatal misunderstanding laid before us today. Last week, we saw in the parable of the wise and unwise virgins, what was the error that those unwise virgins believed? I would say it's the opposite spectrum of what is happening in this parable. The error that they believed there is that they thought, the virgins, that the master, the bridegroom, would go easy on them. He, He would understand their unpreparedness. The the error in this parable, though, is to view God as distant, harsh, cruel, merciless. Both of these are misunderstandings of God. We're tempted, different personalities and temperaments, we're tempted oftentimes to fall off the cliff on one of those misperceptions of God. And there's probably some sitting in this room who have these misunderstandings of Jesus today. A view of Jesus that says something like, you know, he'll be gracious and understanding. I'm confident he's gonna let me into his kingdom. It doesn't matter as much what I believe or how I live. I'm confident he'll be gracious. Go and look at the, the, the surveys that are given for people who claim to be Christians. When they're asked that question, they say things like that regularly. I believe that God's gonna be gracious and let people in. I, I, that's the Jesus I know. It doesn't matter as much what I believe or how I live. That's one error. Or maybe the temptation for you is to fear, a, a kind of fear of Jesus or God that paralyzes you and keeps you ineffective, like this servant, for the kingdom and reveals ultimately that you don't know the gospel of the kingdom. Pastor Moises pointed out in our preaching meeting on Monday of this week, something I thought was fascinating, that the pattern that we see of this, this unfaithful servant, the pattern of, I was afraid of you, 
so I went and hid. What does that sound like? Adam and Eve, the very beginning of the Bible, the first deception in all of Scripture. What, what was going on in that first deception? It was the enemy deceiving Eve, beginning her to question God's goodness. Do you remember what he, what he had her to believe? God doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. She began to believe, even for a moment, God wasn't after her best interest. And that lie, church family, continues to be told today over and over and over. Do you know that? The enemy loves to have us have a view of God that is only he's strict and cruel and merciless. Maybe you had an earthly father that was that way to you. Because of that, you view the God of the scripture that way. How was he unfaithful? It's important to see the second thing, how this unfaithful servant was unfaithful. He was idle and slothful. See the contrast? But we have to see underneath the stewardship of each of these servants was an understanding of their master. Their view of God, hear this, their view of God drove their behavior. This third servant is judged and he's cast out of the kingdom forever. The language is the same exact language as the last verse in chapter 24. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal separation from God. And it showed that he ultimately didn't know his master at all. He didn't understand how generous his master was. He didn't understand that his master had gone to prepare eternal joy for all of those who knew him. Verses 21 and 23. That's what this master was like. And we're back to remembering, aren't we, that important quote that Brother Reuben shared a few weeks ago from A.W. Tozer, that nothing could be more important than one's view of God. Nothing could be more important, church family, than your view of God because it shapes how you live your whole life, doesn't it? It shapes how you view your whole life. And so to sum up this parable, verse 29, that's what verse 29 does. For, Jesus says, to everyone who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And again, notice, what does it mean that to the one who has, to have in this context means what? To have multiplied resources. Even what he has, more will be given, it says. But to the one who has not, in other words, no fruit, what he has will be, will be taken away. So church family, I want us to see that God's word today is calling us to know the Jesus of the Bible truthfully and to be diligent with his kingdom resources that we've been given as we wait with joyful anticipation for him coming back. He's coming back and we long, don't we all? We long to hear Jesus's words, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you not long for that church family? Well done, good and faithful servant, we want to hear. So how can we quickly apply what we're talking about today? 
How can we respond to this today? Well, the first thing that the Lord has put on my heart that I have to say first, that I think is fundamental, that I've alluded to already, is that we have to know the Christ of the Bible. You have to know the Christ of the Bible, not a, not a cultural Christ, not a version where the enemy has whispered a lie in your ear, not a, not a distorted version of Christ, the Jesus of the Bible. The Puritans put it this way, talking about who Jesus is. The Christ of the Bible is high and holy and meek and lowly. He came to save his people from their sins. This is who the Jesus of the Bible is. Because, because our sins separate us from God. The Bible teaches that not one single person can stand in the presence of a holy God. None of us, not just those who are serial killers or those who have done particularly bad things. Every person stands under God's wrath, Romans 1 teaches us. Every single person. That's Isaiah 6, woe is me. They keep us from God's presence forever unless church family, something is done about our sin. And Jesus came and he lived and he suffered and he died, the scripture says in 1 Peter 3, 18, to bring us to God. That's who our great reward is. To be in, to enter into the joy of, of your master one day will be the joy of God's presence that Psalm 16 talks about. Jesus came and he lived and suffered and died to bring us to God. This is who our master is. This is who our master is. Because Jesus came and stood in our place on the cross, all of those who trust in him and in his work have eternal life and eternal joy in God's presence. Do you believe that this morning? This is who Jesus is. And everyone who puts their trust in Jesus no longer has to live in fear today. You no longer have to live in fear. If you've believed that lie about Jesus, you can be free of it today. Hebrews 2.15 says, Jesus came to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Every single person should be terrified of death unless Jesus has dealt with your sins. And his, his offer is here for you today. Do you know him? Do you know the God, the, the Jesus of the scripture, not an imaginary Jesus? Do you know him? And you can know him today. Second, quickly, if you're here and you understand that Christ owns everything and is generously entrusted to us, his resources, secondly, we must live as stewards and not owners. And I thought a helpful way for us to think about this today rather than just applying it to in all these specific ways is at the end of the year, we tend to be more reflective, don't we? That's a good thing. Maybe I wanted to give us some questions that we should ask ourselves as we think about this question. Are we living as stewards and not as owners? Here's a question we wanna ask we should ask ourselves in 2021, did I live, not believe, did I live like a steward or as though I were an owner? That's a worldview shift, church family. 
did I live when I look back at 2021? Another question you should ask, assessing my time, my gifts, my money, is it clear that I'm furthering Christ's kingdom? What would others say who love me and know me? It's a good time of year to think about that. In what specific ways can I grow in faithfulness in 2022? You should ask that question. How can I grow in 2022 in greater faithfulness and fruitfulness? Not just in 2022, right now, this week, how can you grow in faithfulness? And I pray the Holy Spirit will bring specific things to you as you talk with people who know you and love you and as you reflect on that. In just a moment, we're gonna sing, we're gonna respond, and I just want you to know that you can come find me, you can find any of the other pastors and ministers here and talk about whether or not you know the God of Scripture, the Jesus of the Bible. Do you know him, church family? You need to know him and you can know him today. If you wanna know more about how you can spend yourself for the kingdom, you can find out more about that today. Maybe you wanna spend yourself in greater ways in this local church, or maybe you have another specific question, how that can look in your life. Come and talk with us. The stakes are high, church family. Our master is ahead, no outlet, faithfulness is required. Faithfulness is required. But when we know him, I want us to see, when we know him, it is an, it's only an unspeakable joy to serve him with whatever he calls, with, whatever, with wherever he calls us and with whatever he calls us with. Amen? It's an unspeakable joy to serve him.